Australia in the World is a podcast produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. The AAA wants Australians to know, understand and engage more in international affairs. All views expressed are solely those of the speakers themselves. Hello and welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. As always, you're with Darren Lim from the School of Politics and International Relations at the Australian National University and Alan Gingell, National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. Now, back in October of 2019, Alan, you wrote a terrific piece in Australian Foreign Affairs about Australia's bilateral relationship with China. And I had many questions coming out of the piece. And so it was quite convenient that we had this little podcast that would give us a chance to discuss China and Australia-China relations in more depth. And that result was episode 32 of the podcast. And, you know, it's surprised to no one that China has featured in basically every episode since. But we've had fewer opportunities to zoom out and also to look forward. But such an opportunity has presented itself today, Wednesday, the 24th of February. So, Alan, hello, and I'm going to pass the mic over to you to introduce our guests and explain the context for this conversation. Well, thanks very much, Darren. And yes, indeed, the tables have turned and I get to ask the questions and I'm looking forward to it. I'm also delighted to welcome Natasha Kasama, who's joining us today. Natasha is the director of the Lowy Institute's Public Opinion and Foreign Policy Program. She's a former Australian diplomat and during her time in DFAT was posted to Beijing, where she worked on human rights and legal issues in China, a difficult beat. And back in Canberra, she helped draft the Australian government's 2017 foreign policy white paper, which, of course, we've talked to Richard Maud about. Natasha was also a law and justice advisor to the regional assistance mission to Solomon Islands, Ramsey in Honiara. So welcome to the podcast, Natasha. Thank you so much to you both for having me. I'm a long-time listener and have been very grateful for the semi-regular shout-outs from Darren as we've started co-authoring <laughs> together over the past year. Yeah. Look, uh, yes, as, as foreshadowed by Darren, we're here primarily to talk about that work, about the essay that you and Darren have co-authored in Australian Foreign Affairs this week, just come out. I've got my bright yellow copy of it <laughs> here with me. It's called Future Shock, and it's about China's emerging leadership of the international order. It's a great article which asks important questions and provides interesting answers. This is my blurb. And I hope all our listeners will read it for themselves. I'm putting that in, Darren, because we didn't have that usual reading, watching, listening bit at the end. Of it. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Anyway, look, begin with an easy question for you both. How did it come about? What's the, what's the background to the piece? I think the story starts with me because Natasha and I only met January of last year in New Delhi at the Ricina Dialogue. And I think I've discussed this on the podcast before. And we became fast friends. And it, you know, I would look back at those pre-COVID days now where we could actually see each other in person. They were so innocent. But yeah, anyway, I, I, I don't think I've ever said this on the podcast before, but you know, I'm an academic and academia can be a very lonely enterprise when you're sitting at your desk thinking to yourself and, and writing away. And I am someone who relies upon social interactions, I think, to do my best work. Uh, and so I tend to start projects by looking for someone smart and fun with whom to work. And I'd been doing some research on the concept of Chinese hegemony. Sadly, that academic paper has stalled, very much a, a pandemic victim. But when I met Natasha and, and given her expertise on China, I thought that writing something for a broader audience could be worthwhile and fun. And as much as imagining a fairly dystopian future could be considered fun, <laughs> I think it was fun. You know, for me, I've been in the past two years, I've really moved from being a practitioner of foreign policy to a pollster and a pundit. But I don't have the same kind of academic background that Darren does. So this was an interesting way for me to look at these big questions from my policy-based lens and Darren's as a political scientist. Today, so much China analysis makes assumptions about the country and the party's intentions, and then offers very little in terms of what to be done. This is something you guys have talked about a lot in terms of Australia's agency. So this was my attempt, or Darren and my attempt, to float some ideas about 
how we see this challenge and how Australia and others might respond. I guess I should also add that while we did meet in person, the past year has seen many fruitful collaborations via Slack or Zoom, but you can't really replace what happens on the sidelines when you get to meet in person. Mm. Yeah, that's certainly true. Now, now look, you've, you've subtitled the essay, How to Prepare for a China-Led World. So give us a brief summary of the argument. The questions that we're trying to answer here are, what would China's leadership of the international order look like? What does this mean for Australia? And what, if anything, could Australia do to protect its interests? The first question where we look to the likely character of Chinese leadership is that while all great powers seek to create a more favourable global environment in which they can acquire power and prosperity and prestige, what is it that's different about China? And for us, it's the narrower objectives of the party state. And that is a government that's not just led by, but fundamentally is the Chinese Communist Party. How does that translate into China's national interests? So we argue that the party is really concerned with maintaining its hold on power, but also the party believes that it is the entity that will return China to historical greatness. However, having said that, without the kind of legitimacy that you can derive through democratic elections, the CCP looks for other sources of legitimacy. For a long time, that has been economic growth, social stability, but these days we would say those are providing diminishing returns. And so increasingly China's leaders look abroad, both for ways to enhance their legitimacy but also to neutralize threats. We argue that when you translate those objectives into a foreign policy agenda, you get, well, actually we're already seeing to some extent, actions that are challenging the liberal foundations of the existing order. And they really look to burnish those credentials of what we describe as the China model, China's authoritarian political system, but its unique blend of state-led capitalism. And Alan, of course, these you know, raise familiar questions for this podcast. Mm. Uh, and so I think it's worth saying up front that by placing the CCP front and centre, we're certainly not trying to delegitimise China's government, a tactic that the Trump administration in particular, you, you, know, you saw from them and, and that you've eloquently criticised on the podcast in the past. Rather, what we're doing is making a version of the all politics is local argument. In short, to understand China abroad, you need to understand China at home. And turning to the domestic sources of foreign policy doesn't just apply to understand the dynamics of any you know, particular policy issue or dispute. We need to look inside China for clues as to what the long-term character of China's global leadership of the international order will be, any kind of emergent Chinese hegemony, if you will. You know, we say that the post-war order and the post-World War II order was shaped by the character of the US political system. And if, as China comes to exert more influence over that system, you know, the results will reflect China's own internal makeup. But in a more practical sense, before we even get to you know, the position of unquestioned hegemony for China, we should analyse Beijing's impact on the rules and institutions of the current system through the lens of the particular structure of Chinese politics and the interests that emerge from it. Okay, well, let's get into the substance then. You just told us quite rightly that we all analyse China through a particular prism. Now, I guess I'd begin by looking at China with the world-weary eyes of a realist, that is, I see it as great power acting in the world in ways that great powers do. Some people view it through a distinctly Chinese lens, drawing on particularly Chinese history and culture to help them think about how China will behave. And you could describe this as the Middle Kingdom view, and we all you know, know people who begin there. Or you could see it through the lens of the particular party-state system that Tash just described. Now, all of us understand the importance of all three perspectives, and we all bring them all into our analysis. I'm just talking about the sort of starting points. So you start with the idea that it's the Chinese Communist Party controlling an authoritarian one-party state, which is important because it sees, and I'm quoting you here, the liberal values embedded in the present international order 
as a threat to its rule. Unlike the United States, which at times ignores or violates these principles, China needs many of them to be suppressed or even eliminated. Now, could you talk about which particular liberal values you're talking about here and how much of the order needs to be suppressed or eliminated? Because this is a, you know, this is a big thing. After all, isn't a solid part of the existing order pretty norm-free? When you, when you think about the specialised agencies like the International Civil Aviation Organisation or Darren and my old friend, the Universal Postal <laughs> Union, they exist primarily to reduce friction in international exchanges. So everyone has an interest in that. The work they do can certainly generate clashes of national interest in the setting of standards and so on, but they're not really liberal. There are liberal elements in the global trading order, of course, and as you point out, China's happy with those, or mostly happy with those. Would you call the United Nations system itself liberal? Well, doesn't that depend on the way the sovereign members stack up? Most important, I suppose, are their great normative statements, like the Universal Declaration on Human Rights. Anyway, that's a long preamble. But to get back to my question, what is it in the current system that Beijing needs to get rid of for the purposes of the CCP's survival? Alan, that is a very difficult question. Did I ask you anything that difficult when I was interrogating you? I have the utmost confidence in your and Tasha's ability to handle the hard one, Aaron. <laughs> okay, well, let's see. What struck me about your question is that there is a premise, you know, and you're quite explicit about it, baked into it, which is that this idea that a solid part of the existing order is norm-free. And thinking about that, I guess I could see why you say that it might look that way, but despite your particular interest with the Universal Postal Union, Alan, and the problems that we've discussed <laughs> that have been caused by the clash of interests as with the United States having issues with the, who bears the cost of sending packages, I still don't think the organisation itself has really faced any challenges, direct challenges to the way it does its job. So I still actually think it is a liberal organisation, but those liberal norms infuse the way it operates, the processes that it follows to operate. And it's not alone. I would say most, if not all, international organisations that come from the post-war period are like this. But these liberal norms work so well, you don't see them in action. And so you, you observe them in the breach, which of course leads us to the World Health Organization and its challenges over the past year. I mean, I'm, I'm betting if we had this conversation a few years ago, we could probably mostly put the UPU and the WHO in the same bucket. You've got the work of, of safeguarding global public health is a practical, technical, norm-free enterprise. But that's not how it's played out in the past 12 months. I think we can all agree that the Chinese government has an interest in trying to reduce the blame that has been placed, whether fair or not, on its management of the early pandemic and has conducted itself using both legitimate but also illegitimate means to protect that interest. And this has become very relevant in the past few weeks because we had a World Health Organization team visit China to conduct an investigation. Now, I mean, you could begin by saying it's crazy that it took them a year basically to get access. And even the WHO Director General Tedros himself had, had criticised or complained that it took so long. But even with all this time to get their affairs in order, there are still questions that have been raised or acknowledged by the, the WHO team about whether or not China gave all the requested data. And so I've been in preparing for this podcast and, and, and with a piece coming out, I've been thinking a lot about this. And in reading about it, there was a fascinating interview given to the magazine Science by the guy, the WHO official who led the mission. At the very end of the interview, he's asked about a press conference the WHO team did as they were leaving China, which has been widely criticised for being essentially a PR exercise and being too friendly towards China. And this was his response, and I'll quote, the politics was always in the room with us on the other side of the table. We had anywhere between 30 and 60 Chinese colleagues and a large number of them were not scientists, not from the public health sector. We know there was huge scrutiny on the scientific group from the other sectors. He doesn't say what they are, of course. 
So the politics was there constantly. We were not naive and I was not naive about the political environment in which we tried to operate and, let's face it, that our Chinese counterparts were operating under, end quote. I think that that quote captures a big part of our argument in the piece. China's domestic sensitivities have broadened the scope or the domain of international cooperation that can be impeded by politics. You know, to crystallise you know, my point into a specific norm, Alan, as you asked, it would be one of transparency. Beijing has been anything but transparent about what happened, and one doesn't need to dig into wilder theories about the origins of the virus in a lab or whatever to be able to see that this obfuscation itself by itself is, is a threat to the international public health order, which depends, as we can see, I have seen, on transparency to function. We've just had four years of intensely personalised politics from Donald Trump. Do you draw a distinction here? <laughs> no and, and yes. I absolutely believe that Trump's instincts to protect his own personal interests, let alone those of, of his government, would have impeded in some way or sought to impede in some way had there been a WHO investigation for the US. You know, Trump was and, and still remains you know, a threat to these norms as well. And we can go beyond Trump and we can go beyond China. I mean, politicians always, everywhere, have self-interest to protect themselves and their careers. And that is a challenge for international rules and institutions to manage, to manage these politics, right? And that's a challenge for domestic institutions as well. So given politics perennially is about self-interested actors and, and can be a very ruthless business, the question is how do you design institutional structures and systems to mitigate the worst consequences of you know this fundamental reality of the human condition the difference so that's the no part of the answer the yes part of the answer is that the difference is that while trump might have looked to obscure and distract the american system and i'm especially thinking of the media and a mobilized and vigorous democratic party opposition and activists generally i think the media you know, these actors would not have let him get away with this. You know, in this counterfactual, I think we probably would have gotten most of the information because of the political activity of these other actors. And that's another way, I think, in which the, the domestic links to the international, a culture of transparency and accountability inside the US translates into an operating system, you might call it, at the international level. You know, is it perfect? No. You know, has the US hypocritically and selfishly violated it? Yeah, of course. But our point here is that Chinese interests conflict with this system at, at a deeper, you know, operating system type level. And erosion of those underlying processes might not be noticed for a while until you have a crisis. And that's when something like the lack of transparency really matters. But it is exactly the issue of transparency that we argue is a threat to China's political system. So I'm sorry, that was a very long answer and I'm not sure I even really answered your question. No, but I'm sure Tash could do so. Darren, <laughs> Darren, I did take, I take a number of those points. Anyway, Tash. <laughs> Look, uh, part of me thinks we didn't need to write a 5,000-word essay if we could have just said China's domestic sensitivities have broadened the scope of international cooperation that can be impeded by politics. I think that's what we were trying to say, essentially. But look, as you say, Alan, there are certainly liberal foundations of the United Nations, the human rights, equality, international law. This is all enshrined in the UN Charter. It's all in the UN Declaration of Human Rights. And then since then, there have been liberal norms that have emerged. There have been commitments to sustainable development, to gender equality, to good governance. And as you say, quite rightly, these have not necessarily been uniformly upheld. You can look at the United States criticizing China for breaching the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea when the United States itself has not even signed it. But I would say that the UN has always had to find a way to manage those tensions between what we could call sovereignty and the collective good. And you have compromise outcomes and you have states that selectively choose to engage at different times. Still, for all of those issues, the United Nations privileges liberal values over authoritarian ones. At the very least, the UN 
recognizes limits to state authority. And I think it does call for universal rights to be respected. This is in stark contrast to the way that China functions today, where the party sits above the law to the point that lawyers and judges are required to swear oaths to the party themselves. The national interest in China is defined by a few people in power, which you could say here, but those people are not elected and they, I think, are seen as more interested and more focused on those collective interests than those of the individual. And so the civil and political rights that I think we hold dear, equality before the law, freedom of speech, assembly and association, freedom to practice your religion and to have privacy, you know, some of these key elements are enshrined in the international system. And I think they're contrary to Beijing's interests. But the more that China is engaged in the world through globalization, through competition in all of these ways, I think the more exposed China is and China's people are to that liberal world order that does elevate human rights in many societies and does elevate a robust civil society. This exposure can highlight the absence of those features in China's system. And for those reasons, I would argue China sees the values and rights that are enshrined in the international system as a threat. Okay, well, let's get on to what China is doing right now that you find concerning. I think one of the reasons that Darren and I wrote this piece is too often there is a wholesale dismissal of China's right to have an expanded role in the international system. People often say in headlines that China is taking over the UN or dominating its processes. But China is the second largest provider of contributions to the UN's regular budget and to its peacekeeping budget. It actually pays on time, unlike the United States, which is the largest provider. I would argue, and I know it's Australian government language, but with China's size and contributions should come more power and influence. And much of the system to date, as you've already noted, does work for China. And we talk a little bit about the international trading system as an example for that in the piece. And of course, China has been more constructive than the United States there. But at the same time, I do have many concerns and they are about China's efforts to water down human rights, to dilute standards, to shape new norms, and also to exclude Taiwan's participation from the international system. Is Taiwan's treatment a matter shaping the international order? Look, some people might say Taiwan is a special case in this sense, and there are some arguments for that. But I would argue to align with what Darren has already said, that the protracted and substantial efforts that China has gone to, to exclude Taiwan from the international system, particularly in those areas of public health, are clearly contrary to many of those norms that we've discussed. And also, I would argue, to the right of self-determination that was originally included in the UN Charter. Oh, yeah, but you, you've got to be careful with self-determination. The Catalans, the Scots and the Kashmiris will be following right along and you can be sure that Madrid, London and New Delhi will have strong views <laughs> on the way you interpret that part of the Constitution. And look, they can have strong views, but so do I. And I would be happy to see some of those people prosecute those interests. I'm always going to start from the rights of people being more important than the rights of a state. But that might be a debate for another day, Alan. <laughs> and I look forward to that. <laughs> but moving along. <laughs> Look, China has worked through the United Nations, particularly at the Human Rights Council, to water down the universality of human rights and to defend its own abhorrent treatment of the Uyghurs in Xinjiang or to normalise the way that China has denied suffrage to the people of Hong Kong. It's also limited the space for civil society to participate at the Human Rights Council in part by flooding the zone with state-sponsored NGOs, but also by receiving lists of human rights defenders and lawyers that are planning to travel to those human rights committee meetings and placing exit bans on them and even detaining them or worse. I think that having one of the world's largest and most powerful countries normalize this treatment of dissenters and defenders is really troubling. And when we talk about human rights, which is something I'm passionate about, these are well-established and long-standing principles. They're not as easy to water down, but there are 
so many emerging areas of governance like standards and cyber where China's weight can have really significant consequences. You know, there was an article in 2017 in a Chinese publication, Qiushu, where Xi Jinping identified cyberspace as a new field of competition for global governance. He then called for the arms of the state to push China's proposition of internet governance towards, and I'm quoting, becoming an international consensus. So we might disagree on the scale of the potential challenges that China poses to the international system, but I think there are a few in Australia, America and elsewhere who would be happy to hear about the prospect of China's version of the internet, both in terms of censorship and the firewall, becoming something of an international model. Yeah, yeah, okay. But I, I thought China's model was to call for internet sovereignty rather than demand that everyone else imposes their own great wall or hires battalions of Twitter censors. So, you know, I agree that approach might give the authoritarians around the place some comfort, but it's certainly not going to change our system because, you know, among other things, we think our system will benefit us economically and politically over time. And in any case, we have just as much opportunity to push back with a different model, don't we? In any case, maybe, aren't we all moving closer to a control model of cyber and away from the freewheeling libertarianism of early Silicon Valley? Now, so that's the model question. The, the technical standards issue, on the other hand, will have an important economic consequence for the country that gets to set them up if they take off. But there's no liberal element in the choice of one sort of widget over another since <laughs> the depth of my technical expertise. <laughs> Mine's not that much greater, Alan, but but I I, I will say that yeah, China is is very good at promoting high level concepts. Yeah, we've talked about the community of shared future for mankind before, a win-win cooperation. And in, in this case, internet sovereignty, which have this motherhood quality to them that make them hard to object to and, and or hard to counter at the level of rhetoric. And Australia is not going to succeed if we try to argue, right, that other countries don't have sovereign rights over their internet, especially given our own prime minister's emphasis on sovereignty and you know, thinking recently his government's recent battles with, with Facebook and, and Google, you know, internet governance is an especially fraught policy space right now. But still, I think you can read our piece as expressing concern that the interaction of Chinese principles and methods with the political and economic systems of many countries poses important and real risks to liberal political institutions just as you know, China's institutional statecraft, motivated by its, its broad regime security interests, poses risks to the liberal operating system of the, of the international order. Well, Alan, I promise not to comment on your technical expertise, but I would argue that Twitter censors were very much 2020, and 2021 is all about the clubhouse censors. So... <laughs> <laughs> Okay, yeah, no. no <laughs> you're taking out from Darren as the reminder to me of this podcast of my age. No, but look, you're you're right to say that it seems like the entire world is moving to a more centralized model of internet governance. I think if we were to try to articulate a comprehensive strategy, it would really quickly collapse under the weight of its own contradictions. I mean, there's recent reporting that shows the American company Oracle is helping Chinese police with their data and analytics, for example. When we look at the internet domain, I think the extent of our contribution is to point out the mechanisms through which certain models of internet governance pose risks to liberal politics and liberal institutions. I often think about how China shut down the internet in Xinjiang in 2009 for 10 months. At the time, this was an incredibly rare thing to see, but we wouldn't consider it to be that unusual now. There are shutdowns in India, Sri Lanka, and of course, today in Myanmar. These are just some of the examples we've seen. Of course, this is not all because of China, but a large country behaving in this way, I think does normalize that kind of behavior. The idea of the internet 
in China as a controlled space for speech is still pretty far away from what I would think of as a controlled space for speech in Silicon Valley, which is more about removing hate speech and extremism and other issues. But we do concede, as Darren has already said, there will be a dimension of pure self-interest here, and particularly in the standards domain. I think that we just need to appreciate there's no strategy that's motivated only by that kind of self-interest that will be particularly persuasive. Yeah, okay. Now, look, you also write that rather than upend the existing international system, Beijing's approach today is to co-opt, ignore, and exploit institutions selectively. She has said that reforming and improving, and I'm quoting, you're quoting him here, reforming and improving the current international system does not mean completely replacing it, but rather advancing it in a direction that is more just and reasonable. But, you know, when you think about it, is that really all that much different from Maurice Payne? I mean, here she is in June talking about the Morrison government's audit of multilateral institutions. We must stand up for our values and bring our influence to bear on those institutions to protect and promote our national interests and to preserve the open character of the international institutions based on universal values and transparency. So is there is there something uniquely Chinese about that? It, it strikes me, Alan, that that infamous multilateral audit, you know, if there's only one reason why it might have been ill-advised, it was just to make our lives more difficult in writing this piece. <laughs> you know, that is very odd phrasing from the foreign minister to talk about, you know, standing up for Australia's values and then in the same sentence talk about universal values. I mean, are all of Australia's values universal? I mean, we might think so, but I'm not sure we're going to persuade the world that that's the case. No, mate, I don't think they are. (laughs) (laughs) How good is Australia? Now, I mean, (laughs) second, though, her use of the term transparency is key, and I'm going to latch onto that and return to my earlier point. You know, the more I've thought about what actually constitutes order or international order, the more I've been focusing on on process, how states go about structuring decision-making and gathering the inputs to those decisions. You know, many of us will remember those stories of Chinese diplomats making a ruckus uh, in various international fora in recent years, especially regarding um, whether Taiwanese representatives um, would get to participate in a given given meeting. Um, And more recently, we've seen, you know, the wolf warrior diplomacy phenomenon. And on some level, we roll our eyes and, and maybe we think they're sort of darkly amusing. But, you know, Again, this brings me back to COVID-19 and WHO. When it really counted, you know, these actions manifested in a culture of secrecy and, you know, it, it bears emphasising, you know, denying international investigators access for a year is an unalloyed bad for international public health. Now, how much worse is public health because of it? You know, I don't know. Maybe a lot, maybe not much. But the point remains that the breadth of Beijing's political interests has consequences for the order's operating system. And that brings me to my third point. Again, I don't think China is is unique. I'm sort of almost repeating myself now and being self-interested. I expect all countries to do this and to be hypocritical. And, you know, you can look first to the United States and the selfishness and the hubris that's often guided US policy, especially in the past 30 years. But again, part of what the US created after World War II was both the institutions and practice of an open and transparent system of international engagement, of of making decisions. And you combine that with its own relatively open system. The result was the gradual building and strengthening of constraints on state behaviour. Now, these constraints aren't necessarily going to stop states. They don't stop states from doing counterproductive things when they really want to. But they do at least raise the costs of doing bad behaviour. You know, the US paid a price for Iraq. Trump paid a price at home for all the things that he did to trash U.S. institutions and violate U.S. norms. And that price was imposed by the institutions themselves. And what's unique about China's challenge to this system, I think, is that it has the size, the power to erode it in ways that will reduce the price that its government and also other governments will pay for their policy failures. What we have now is an imperfect and incomplete system of accountability, But even that seems incompatible with Beijing's interests. 
Yeah, and I do think that Darren's points about accountability and transparency are really at the core of this argument as to why things are different if China is in charge. For all of its failings, the United States is one of the most reported and most litigated places in the whole world. And with that comes some level of transparency and accountability. To my mind, China is the opposite. We have so little information that isn't either from official channels or comes from sources that face repressive censorship or constant challenges in doing their reporting. So as I said earlier, I think there's little willingness in the Chinese system to recognize limits on state authority. And then if we think about that in the context of the international system, just in the past week, we've seen the UN Secretary General say that we are all diminished when a minority community's culture, language, or faith is attacked. But then the same UN Secretary General is asked to comment on what we know is unfolding in Xinjiang, and he has no comment. This is deeply concerning. There have been numerous investigations, one in particular by the Wall Street Journal, into countries that have been encouraged by China to stop speaking out about what's happening in Xinjiang. And the particular example that they pointed to was in Indonesia, a country that regularly talks about Palestine. The normalization of these extrajudicial internment camps and intense surveillance disguised as measures for counterterrorism, it has really frightening implications around the world. So many countries see themselves as dealing with separatist movements. And then do these countries look at, for example, the way China has crushed opposition in Hong Kong? And do they see that people who were promised democracy on some level and now the opposition is all in jail and people are fleeing? Or do some of these countries look at Hong Kong and maybe see a toolkit, an effective toolkit for managing national security threats that will meet limited or muted international opposition? Look, until recently, one of the pieces of conventional wisdom you'd often hear about China, and it's one I confess I subscribe to myself, is that the Chinese leadership is so preoccupied with its own internal problems, which are numerous, and the cultural sense of Han uniqueness runs so deep that they had no desire to export their system. Uh, you argue, on the other hand, that the party's ideological security demands, and I'm quoting you, not just an international system where the China model can exist, but one in which it serves as an example for other countries. And then you quote Xi Jinping saying, the banner of socialism with Chinese characteristics is now flying high and proud for all to see. It means that the path, the theory, the system and the culture of socialism with Chinese characteristics have kept developing, blazing a new trail for other developing countries to achieve modernization. It offers Chinese wisdom and a Chinese approach to solving the problems facing mankind. Now, look, I don't want to be accused of whataboutism, which uh, was a really useful word that we heard so often during the second Trump impeachment. But is that all that much different from the sort of thing that we hear American leaders say? Here's Joe Biden at the State Department a couple of weeks ago. America's most cherished democratic values are the grounding wire of our global policy, our global power. That's our inexhaustible source of strength that's America's abiding example. Now, you might well say it is different, but I'm interested in how and where it is. Yeah, that's fair enough, Alan. I think that in the past, I would have been quite inclined to agree with you and with others. I really thought that China's efforts to quieten dissent abroad and to encourage deference in other countries was more about what Jessica Chen Weiss has described as making the world safe for autocracy rather than exporting their own system. And on some level, I think we have to concede that China's system cannot be exported. There are very few countries that could have an organization department or Chinese Communist Party committees that are throughout government, business, communities, schools. I don't see this as replicable. But what I do think is replicable is a strong state-dominated economy a repressive security apparatus, limited freedoms of speech, and a restricted internet. And when we see Beijing using wealth and power, as many other countries have, 
to induce and coerce support for various positions, it can have a corrosive impact on those existing norms and existing rules. To my mind, this isn't undermining the agency of those countries as much as China may be exporting elements of its model other countries are importing it. And we do talk about a few examples in the paper where there are countries using Chinese facial recognition software and surveillance equipment. They are doing that to meet needs that they see as having in their countries, not necessarily because China is pushing them to take them. We can also see in liberal democracies that are concerned about right-wing extremism and other challenges and are looking how to deplatform content, how to delete Trump's account. So you could make an argument that elements of China's toolkit does look more and more appealing in more and more places. But to your very good question about similar statements from Biden and throughout US history, to me this does differ in terms of outcomes and because of the nature of the system. The US has long had democracy promotion at the heart of its foreign policy and it's had mixed results. And we criticize that in this essay and elsewhere. But as a general broad brush, I would argue the US is championing limits on state authority, universal rights, the public interest over these single political parties. By contrast, China advocates the party as above the law, advocates collective interests as more important than individual interests. And in numerous cases, these efforts from China have weakened institutions and fed corruption. But it would be entirely fair, and I accept that we should make the same accusations of the United States at different times. I, I tweeted about the article on you know a few days ago, and it's been great to see so many people interested in it. And one of the you know, good critiques that I've seen is that you know, you're giving China too much credit, right? Like they're not exporting their system; they don't have the, you know, really the capability, and maybe not even the interest in doing so. But then, you know, my response to that is to is to quote Spider Man, which is "With great power comes great <laughs> responsibility." Even if the, the, the would be autocrats of the world are just simply pushing on an open door, it, it's China's leadership or emerging leadership of the system that is opening that door for them, and it's in their self interest to do so. And we can explain it that way. But that's what where the consequences lead you. So I think on some level we have to concede the what about is in charge. You know, okay, when you sit down to write a piece on the trajectory of the international system. And, and given, especially that we're entering a phase of intense major power rivalry, at some point you, you have to put your cards on the table at least somewhat. And, and so we're saying, yes, like it is in Australia's interests that the China model is not widely taken up and so that it becomes entrenched across the Indo-Pacific or even across the world. As Natasha said, there is the risk that the system leadership by an autocracy will erode liberal political values and the consequences that has for, for human flourishing are quite concerning. That's all very important, and we should be pushing back against that, just as we would push back against moves to limit liberal freedoms in our own countries and around in democracies around the world. But there's also a second argument, a strategic argument, which we don't really get into in the AFA piece, but I, I think we've discussed before on the podcast, Alan, you know, one of the most interesting features of the current strategic landscape is how few allies or really even very good friends Beijing has. You've got North Korea, obviously, and maybe you can add Cambodia and, and or Pakistan to that list. But those ties aren't as deep or enduringly stable as those that Washington has with Canberra or Tokyo, for example. So when I conduct a thought experiment that tries to identify the conditions under which you might see a wholesale realignment within the region strategically, you know, perhaps the forming of some kind of bandwagoning coalition, as they say in the IR literature. The pathway that I imagine involves political transitions towards semi-permanent, somewhat stable autocracies across the region, which then become, or in the process become, client states of Beijing, relying on Chinese money, you know, to help support their own narrow political coalitions and utilising Chinese methods to otherwise repress those political forces that would seek to hold them accountable and, and indeed replace them for making bad policy choices. So democratic processes are the antidote to such a strategic realignment because they punish bad policy. And like all governments, autocratic systems make policy mistakes and arguably they make bigger ones. It is normal and legitimate for Beijing to wield instruments of statecraft to achieve influence. But where I think Australia and our partners need to be relatively more concerned is when the consequences of that influence 
is corrosive for local institutions. You know, I had this concern under Trump too, obviously. Now, if governments explicitly supported by Beijing make good policy decisions and they can win free and fair elections, then good for them. But if they make mistakes, voters or publics need the ability to both to learn about those mistakes through transparency and punish them, hold them accountable for them at the ballot box. So back to your Biden quote, Alan, and, and, and the State Department language, you know, when I hear talk about democracy as a source of strength, these are the mechanisms I'm thinking about. You know, smart US policymakers telling us that open democratic systems are in Washington's long-term interests, even when from time to time they result in the election of governments that are more skeptical of the US. What matters is that the institutions and the norms of transparency, accountability, and political turnover still exist. You've got a nice line in the essay in which you say liberal democracies have to balance two competing imperatives. The first is the maintenance of an order with universal participation in order to address challenges like climate change. And secondly, and we've been talking about this, the preservation of universal liberal beliefs about the rule of law and individual rights. Then you say the space in between is where strategy emerges. And the space in between, of course, is also where practitioners live. So tell us about your strategy and what we can do. Yeah, that, that's uh, that's the, the very hard question. And of course, the answer depends on that familiar topic of agency that we've discussed, Alan. Whether we can move the needle is an open question, but we have to be optimistic and, and try. So let me start with one point, and this is one I've made before on the podcast here. Any response needs to be positively oriented and speak to the concerns of other governments and peoples. The order's trajectory is not going to be decisively decided by Beijing or Washington or Canberra, but in these swing states of the system, and that's most of the Indo-Pacific. But what won't succeed is moralising about the illiberal nature of China or Chinese methods, because China's message does get one big thing correct. Developing countries are primarily focused on development, on improving the material lives of their people. That doesn't mean they don't care about civil and political rights, but it does mean that these liberal values are not going to be decisively persuasive. Rather, the case needs to be made that good governance goes hand in hand with material results. You know, that, that greater leader accountability, limited policy flexibility, and greater transparency both promote development and are good for the individual. It's about shaping the nature of Chinese engagement with these countries rather than trying to prevent it. And there's a dimension too, I think, here of, of making the case to China that it's in Beijing's interests, both financial and political, to respect these norms inside of other countries, because that will mean better outcomes both for Chinese investment, but also more stable political relationships that can sustain some level of Chinese influence. I still don't quite know what that looks like, but ideally, you know, you're looking for an equilibrium where Beijing feels it can accumulate influence and protect its core interests, or at least many core interests, without putting all its eggs in one unstable authoritarian basket. Yeah, I would have to agree with that because there seems to be a bit of unwillingness to accept that after the Asian financial crisis, so much of our region were encouraged to look to China for economic opportunities. Australia included, and now they are criticised for being too tied to China, so too are many Australian industries. I think for many of these countries in the region, they are quite frustrated with being talked about or talked to only in this frame of great power competition. And so as Darren says, there is now a positive case to be made that democratic institutions can contribute more to national welfare and international peace and prosperity than any alternative. Look, this is more challenging because of all the issues we've already raised and we mentioned in the article, our systems are weakened by contradictions and hypocrisy, the war in Iraq, of course, and now we claim that we share values with Vietnam and its communist party. So... I still think, though, that Australia does loom large for many of these countries as a powerful example of what happens when China is angry. And of course, as much as that economic coercion and wolf warrior diplomacy can stifle some criticism, 
It also creates this image of Beijing as a bully. There is a potential backlash to China's behavior that has been seen in public opinion throughout the region. Maybe that also creates an opportunity to burnish our credentials. You know, we would argue that Australia has been remarkably successful in withstanding pressure from China, and we can work with partners in the region to provide solidarity, to provide practical assistance in the face of some of this coercion. The Twitter sphere this week has also criticised the article on some level for being a bit too rosy and a bit too optimistic about what Australia can do in this scenario. And I take that criticism. I think it's fair. This is not a claim that any of this would be easy. In fact, it's quite the opposite. But I do think that we have to try. And I think to to follow on from that, there's a dimension of just you know, good foreign policy is good domestic policy. You know, it's the, almost the opposite of, of what you're hearing in the United States, that we need to keep our own house in order and, and project a positive vision of a, a well-functioning democratic state as part of our foreign policy message. But Alan, now that you've interrogated us, can I ask, did this piece or this discussion change your mind on any, any of these issues? Well, I think it was a great discussion, Darren, and a great piece. And I really do congratulate you and Tash and urge everyone to go out and buy the latest edition of Australian Foreign Affairs with Absolutely. a future shock in it. I am going to be th- rethinking some of the issues that we've talked about for a while yet. You introduced centrally, really, the idea of transparency as a value to me, and I want to, want to think more about that. And one of one of the reasons I want to think about it is that one of the ironies here is that our current multilateral system was set up partly in response to the failures of the League of Nations and to the aspirations of people like US President Woodrow Wilson, who at the Paris Peace Conference with his 14 points famously began with the demand for open covenants of peace openly arrived at, after which there shall be no private international understandings of any kind, but diplomacy shall proceed always frankly and in the public view. Well, it didn't work so well. So the UN system in, you know, in response to that was from the beginning much more power-based through the weight and authority of the Security Council, for example. Well, that's a lot to think about. And it, yeah, I can, can I say from my point of view, it's been really valuable to do this conversation, discussing it prior. Yeah, I think it's helped crystallise our argument even more than the iterations that we went through in, in drafting the piece. So thank you, Alan, for pushing us. But you know, even more, thanks, Natasha, for coming on today. Yeah, it's been lots of fun working with you and it was a real thrill to get you on the podcast and to have you attract some of Alan's friendly fire. So please come back. You obviously got your job as directing the, the Lowy Institute's polling work and public diplomacy. And so there's a lot to talk about there. And so we'll hopefully have you back in the very near future to talk about that. If it'll be a similar level of interrogation, I'm all in. But thank you so much for having me. You know, I love this podcast and it's a real pleasure to be a part of it today. That's all for today's episode of Australia in the World. We thank AIIA intern Mitchell McIntosh for audio editing today and bid him farewell with really many thanks for his help and best wishes for the future. Yeah, thank you very much, Mitchell, that you've been great. And as always, we also thank Rory Stenning for composing our theme music. Thank you and talk to you again soon. Thank you.